This is the Everything Went Black Halloween episode. But if you'd actually listened to the Metal Matters podcast, this was this is the uncut, director's cut version of that episode. At Metal Matters, we have to stick to 60-minute maximum program length. But Ron and I went well over that, so I figured I'd put a bonus episode. The entire unfiltered, uncut, and unabridged conversation that Ron and I had. Halloween is upon us, man. It's my favorite time of year. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really cool talking to you, Ron. I, uh, you're, you're someone who I consider to be in the know when it comes to music, old and new. And also, this is an excellent opportunity for us to just talk on the phone and catch up a little bit. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and not a, I guess not a more fitting time because it is both of our favorite, you know, weird, you know, the weirdo kids, you know, holiday. You yeah. know, this is this is our Christmas. So, um, I think it, it it's actually I'm I'm stoked that you asked me to do this. Yeah, man. So maybe you know maybe we can have some future episodes where we talk about a bunch of other stuff because you know I have the classic records things I do and. Um, you know, like I said, you're a wealth of information about bands, you know, past and present. So we can maybe pick some stuff down the line to talk about as well. Cool. I'm, I'm into it. Okay. So the gist of this episode, being that it's a primarily music related episode and this being a holiday of sorts, we're going to kind of broaden the bandwidth of things we talk about. And, you know, Halloween is a very metal holiday. You know, deals with darkness and evil and, you know, sort of macabre subject matter and that kind of thing. So Ron and I have compiled a list of our top five extreme music, quote unquote, related topics. And it's either it could be a band, a record, a song. You know, it's pretty much wide open, but it has to connect to, you know, hardcore metal, punk you know, that sort of outsider world that all of us are part of right now that are listening to this thing. So uh, maybe let's go one for one. Like you give me one, no particular order, and I'll give you one and we'll just kind of go from there. And being that it's uh, a Halloween episode, I'm sure we'll we'll have tie-ins to movies and horror and all that sort of fun stuff. Okay, I guess like let's go for the most obvious, like, uh, like the best Halloween songs that are titled Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go for the obvious. So for me in, in this order, it definitely goes John Carpenter's Halloween theme, like a yeah. landmark, a landmark fucking movie. It still stands the test of time. And that theme song. Yeah. Totally. Like it is, I mean, people who aren't into soundtrack music, people who aren't, don't even, aren't that big in horror know that theme they hear those key, those notes going and they know boom you know that that is definitely out of all the songs out there there's a t- too many title halloween like definitely number one is carpenter's version of the theme song number two would definitely for me be the misfits halloween which is probably one of their best songs top tier like glenn danzig uh and uh, the misfits definitely led to the creation of speed metal. Yeah. Like 100%. earth, a, the earth, AD album is just a blueprint 
for thrash metal before before it was called thrash metal you know i guess you could say it was the proto-punk of thrash metal yeah um and then third not metal but still metal cool is Susie and the banshees halloween oh yeah which is just a creepy fucking song like the lyrics everything about it and and definitely and i i when you asked me to do this i i did go through my my catalog my mental catalog i went online but those for me were the three the three best songs out there in my opinion of titled halloween what about you yeah i i um i i tend to agree with you on all of those uh i like halloween too on november coming fire uh as well yeah that was that was in there in there too like not necessarily the Misfits version. Actually, man, the whole Initium album and November Coming Fire are just great Halloween soundtrack music. Yeah, totally. Related to but yeah, I got to agree with you. Halloween two, that that just heavy crushing guitar riff. R- related to uh, Carpenter is just that um, that theme that just pops up throughout almost all like the first two Halloween films. And then also that remake that came out, they couldn't keep their hands off of that iconic theme that Carpenter crafted for that movie. Yeah. Cause it's, it's just filled with dread yeah. and, and, and anticipation. Like you, that's the uh, audio version of dread. Like, Oh shit. Something, you know, I remember watching, carpenter do an interview when halloween came out when i was a kid on johnny carson and he had said uh, one of the things they had brought up was that although halloween was such a horrifying film that it wasn't gratuitous in violence and that uh, things were left to your imagination yeah you know and carpenter had said one a very profound thing that has always stuck with me he goes yeah it's kind of like Let's say you're you're alone in a house and and you find half of a snake, the tail end half wiggling around and coming towards you. Where's the other half? That's more frightening. What you don't see. Yeah, I mean it, it's um, the first Halloween film is so atmospheric. You know what I mean? And uh, the parts that I found particularly creepy were the daylight parts. Like when, you know, Michael Myers is kind of lurking around Haddonfield and, uh, yeah. And, and in the bushes and just in, in the soft focus of the back. Yeah. And I also have to say that, uh, I think he's one of the coolest dressed slasher, uh, film characters. You know, he just has like that work, co- you know, coat on and the dickies and just this kind of like, evil plumber like look about him you know with the mask and everything. <laughs> yeah and and it, it, it again it was a template you know like that kind of set a template that you know it didn't need to be overstated he didn't need to have like rotted clothes on with yeah. maggots crawling all over it for it to it was genuinely sinister and uh, a lot you know, of some and, people might know this, but the uh, the actual original Michael Myers mask was a was a uh, William Shatner mask, apparently. Yes, it was. <laughs> so they they spray painted it with primer. Yeah, and that makes it even more common. Like the commonplace sort of generic aspect of that makes it even more like frightening, you know, because it could have it's just so normal, you know, and so common. Yeah, nothing remarkable about William Shatner's face yeah, at all. Totally. 
Except but, that he's a handsome devil, man, back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, he was. And, and, and bald. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he, doesn't say, he doesn't say sabotage. He says sabotage. <laughs> oh, dude, that was like one of my favorite things. I, I, I'm not, I heard that on Howard Stern where he was like yeah. refusing to be corrected by the guy. <laughs> um, oh yeah that that i actually have a whole series of cds of stuff like that like orson wells drunk and getting irate being told what to do by a audio engineer it was a uh, nick bogus did a cd series called celebrities at their worst and it went up to three volumes and that's it's awesome. just it even has that infamous uh buddy rich yelling at his band members on the bus and one of the guys had a portable recorder and recorded it oh man like berating the band members on the bus i know it's it's it, uh you know you got i love shout in front <laughs> is that how you pronounce it <laughs> the uh related to carpenter one of my things that's on this list is don't fear the reaper by blue oyster colt which um oh man how did i miss that one i mean that's, that's featured one of one of it's actually not on the soundtrack like if you buy a Halloween soundtrack, it's just the John Carpenter score, and they don't have uh -huh. the licensing for this song, I guess, to to put it on a mechanical copy of the record. But uh, that's a incredibly Halloween specific song that I had actually heard that song before I saw the movie because I had a cousin, and uh, the well, this is this is a funny story. The guy that she ended up marrying was had a huge record collection and he had the agents of fortune record which came out in july 1976 and um that song out of all the songs on that record that's the one that really stuck with me and then probably the following year when um when halloween came out in 1978 i um that song i was like oh that's that song from that record that my cousin's uh fiance loaned me to listen to and uh, the, the sort of connection to those two things. And the song just has like a very autumn sound to it. It's a somber, very kind yeah. of, you know, very um, internal like vibe to it, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, it whispers and it does like I, you, you hit it like autumn. It has a real autumn feel to it, you know, and and one of the greatest rock songs ever. I, I don't know how I how that that one passed me on my list, you know, but it's, yeah, genuinely creepy, beautiful at the same time. Um, and, you know, I, you know, swap meet favorite. Like I remember like at the swap meet, you could get a shirt that had a grim reaper on it and said, don't fear the reaper. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I do like Boyster cult, but, uh, only maybe like a few songs on each record. You know what I mean? I have to agree with that. I mean, I think um, there is one LP, and it, and it, I, for the life of me, it escapes me that I like. Um, but, but overall, yeah, I'm more of a of a cuts, yeah. like you know, a cuts a cuts of theirs, and and uh, and and you know, probably like one of their earlier ones. And it, it's just escaping me. It's the one that looks like an Escher album cover. Is the album I actually oh, yeah. liked? I know that one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you could, you could, they're a great mixtape band. Like, if you made a mixtape of all their great songs and you were like, oh, yeah, this is like great, you know, Godzilla, like, you know, veteran of a Hot thousand psychic wars. Like that, yeah. yeah, you know, and, 
But the scene in this movie, I think, is particularly cool because it starts off very light where Laurie Strode and her buddy, I think her name is Annie. I just watched this movie last night, by the way. So that's why some of this stuff's like fresh in my memory. They're smoking weed in the car. And it's like this kind of light, like high school girl kind of thing going on. But unbeknownst to, the, unbeknownst to them, Michael Myers is tailing them in a stolen police car. So it's like the songs about death and the inevitability of death. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, and Carpenter being a music guy had to have crafted that scene, I think, around this, all these different markers. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it was like it was an omen almost. Yeah. Like that song playing in the background, and 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 he's like Mike Myers is following them. They don't even realize, and then he, basically his theme song is like playing, you know, while they're carelessly like smoking their joint. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That that was nothing. their um that was that was Blue Oyster Cult's highest charting song, by the way. Yeah, I I it, I, I wouldn't you know I think. They never really had too many mainstream hits. What burning for you? That one, yeah, um, and a lot of FM hits. But yeah, that's definitely. And I mean, that thing is still getting played and used like crazy. But, but it's a great song, man. Yeah, you know, I just, I just think it's the um, Reaper over and over again. Then like, don't worry, be happy, or Stairway to Heaven. True. The macabre nature of the song, though, surprises me that it's. Um, it, it actually was such a hit with people because, you know, it's the 70s, you know what I mean? And, you know, the sort of darker aspects of popular culture hadn't really taken hold with the mainstream yet. But no, I mean, everybody was like, you know, choking down Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles yeah. and the California sound, you know. I mean, I grew, I grew up through that. That was my era. Like, you know, as a kid and so, growing up in Southern California, and it's like Linda Ronstadt, you know, the Eagles, um, you know, Fleetwood Mac, and and you know, Seals and Crofts. You know, like everything was light and and mellow, and and I think that's what what's great about that song too is it's it's so it's so it, it it's uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but it. It's so covertly sinister. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's subversive. It's a truly subversive song, especially at the time yeah. that it came out. Truly subversive. Yeah, it's palatable. But then when you dig deeper into the, the lyrics, you start to realize that, you know, and some people thought it was about suicide pacts and all this sort of stuff, but it's just, you know, about the inevitability of death and to not fear it. And I guess it's like, in a way, it has a positive message, but it just is very sinister. Yeah. yeah. Again, especially at, at the time that it came out, that there was, it, it, for for a song like that to be a hit, and it, and it was a huge hit. Like it, uh, it got played endlessly on the AM on your AM radio. Um, I think one of the reasons why it was able to get through was because it, it sounds a lot like the birds at times. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. You know, that's I remember thinking that as a kid, like like that. It was it was like a, a song by the birds and, and um, you know, the really light melody and everything to it. But yeah. again, once you when you read the lyrics and and um, and even the imagery of that album, the Agents of Fortune is is even somewhat sinister in its way. Um, you know, it has a magician on the cover, like doing the card trick, you know, but 
there, there's some kind of like what you don't see, you know? Yeah. But, there's an implication or something there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Like there's an application of other, other mechanisms at work that they're not, they're not telling you about. The funny thing is, you know, I found, you know, of course, another, another thing on this list here is a, is a black Sabbath record. And, um, I think that I got into both of those bands like around the same time and, you know, there's the obviousness of Sabbath and the, you know, the first Sabbath record. And I'm like, yeah, this is really cool. It's like, you know, hammer horror and all that. But I found that agents of misfortune or agents of fortune, I'm confusing bands here with hammers of misfortune, agents of fortune, that record cover, I found myself looking at it a lot more than the Sabbath records because it was kind of vaguely disturbing. You know, it had that unease to it. Yeah, it was almost a Lovecraftian if you think about it. Oh, okay. The the record cover being Lovecraftian. Yeah, because like it had that you know again like there's some this uh, that that existential dread of oh, like okay. there's something not right here, hmm. but what is it? Okay. Yeah, I could dig that definitely. All right, so let's let's move down our lists here and. Um, what uh what else we got here um let's see let's you know what like uh we let's see talking about music and everything um maybe film soundtracks oh actually i, I have a bunch of stuff we can we can hit and you can comment okay. on if you want all right cool tsol code blue the song which literally is about necrophilia. And once again, that record, uh, Dance With Me, I discovered that at a young age, and I was associated that with Halloween and the fall and the autumn. And uh, I know that you probably can speak a lot more eloquently about TSOL since you know a lot of those guys. But, uh, but yeah, that record in particular, 1981's Dance With Me, and uh, the song "Code Blue" specifically are uh, are to me kind of like Halloween soundtracks. I remember being a kid and getting into punk rock music and going to high school parties. And uh, there's this one girl that I knew that always had house parties, and the song was like, you know, always playing on like her Halloween party. I thought, you know, sort of had that nostalgic vibe to it. Yeah, it. Definitely at that time, like, I mean, growing up in the punk scene, and T.H.L. was like one of our flagship bands, you know, and, and, and a local band. And it was weird because the only thing we had at the time was the, the Posh Boy EP, the first, you know, five, six song EP. And, and that was extremely political. Yeah. Like, you know, very anti-establishment, you know, and, and political record. And then they released Dance With Me, and we see the cover, and it's got this cool Grim Reaper in the cemetery, and the record just turned everything on its head. And that was always into the, always what TSOL's MO has been, is every record was completely different. But they never, they didn't just change the tunes, man. They would change everything. They would completely transform. You know, Code Blue was the second song on that record. And, and you got to remember, this is like 1982. Yeah. Maybe, like early 81, 82. And I have a song that is literally writing about 
necrophilia blatantly saying i want to fuck the dead was a daring and and, and mind-blowing thing to hear when you're 15 a 15 year old working class catholic kid and immediately running to my stereo and turning down the volume so my parents didn't hear jack grisham saying i don't want i want to fuck the dead you know yeah and and uh but that whole record yeah was it was you know a horror punk and to this day is one of the greatest horror punk records you know out there and uh you know i i still listen to that record regularly i have my i still have my original copy that i bought you know and every i mean everything like about that record is perfect like great hardcore um even some killing joke type you know uh tribal beats on the sounds of laughter yeah um the creepy doors-esque you know uh silent scream which was you know the lyrics were taken from a, a supposedly a poem um you know and uh yeah, it, it, those guys always every, with every record set themselves apart. But they will that's their that's the peak. I think the band like they pretty much like helped create almost the, the, the horror punk thing along with the Misfits, but even more so because they where the Misfits might have been a little more campy. TSOL weren't playing it campy on that record, and. You know, then they went and did the next record, which was, a you know, the next full length LP had keyboards on it and was a completely different direction. But you know what? There was no need for another dance. That record's perfect. And, and they made their they made it. They made their mark and they moved on. And there really was no need for them to try and, and duplicate that. We've got that record. And it, it, that's definitely one of the you know, West Coast punk rock 101 greatest LPs ever done. And one that you I always end up like, you know if someone's asking me about what they should listen to that, that record always ends up on that list uh, for, for multiple reasons. I, I would even almost say that record rivals some of the misfits best work. Oh, I totally you know? agree with that, man. I mean, and for the reason you mentioned about them changing on every record, I've always admired TSOL. And I, I even like the, like one of the post Jack Grisham records too. I mean, I'm a huge Jack fan, but the record Revenge that came out afterwards, like in the sort of twilight years, I guess, um, I thought that was a solid record, you know? I don't mind the Joe Wood era at yeah. all. I like Revenge and I like Change Today. Change it's today, a different yeah. band and maybe they should have called it something different, but they're still good records. Yeah. You know, and, and with TSOL or Jack Grisham, he, he's kind of like, and I'm not trying to compare him to someone like Bowie or or the Melvins, but I, I put certain people like that, like Zappa, the Melvins, Bowie, and, and the stuff that Jack Grisham does. You might not like every record that they put, but that is the record they intended to put out. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I find most admirable about the stuff that they do, or specifically that Jack was doing, because I felt like he, I mean, not knowing specifically, but... I got the impression that he was kind of the the heart and soul of the band and kind of was drive the driving force behind what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, to like again, like I'm not a I'm not a big fan of all of their new stuff. Um, you know, but I don't want to see somebody else singing for them. Yeah. You know, 
the same time. Like I, I, and when they go on stage and they play that old stuff, they, they bash it like they, like they always have, you know, they don't play like improved versions of those songs. They, they give it, you know, they play it just as primal and, and raw as, as it is on record, you know, which is smart, you know, but, but dance with me definitely goes down as one of the, one of the best, you know, if not definitive, like horror punk records ever made. A real obvious one here is uh, Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. And I mean, I, I, I thought about not putting this or not talking about this particular song, but I would feel like I would be a hipster if I didn't mention Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, the first track on the self-titled record. And uh, because that song literally scared the shit out of me the first time I heard it. And um because I'd heard the Dio records first. I'd heard uh, Heaven and Hell. And I was like, yeah, you know, Sabbath is uh killer. You know, they're, I understood like the context of the music. Like I was listening to Rainbow at the time. I checked out the Scorpions. And that record had a very, um, you know, tight kind of uh, polished sound to it. But then when a friend of mine's older sort of brother-in-law he was, you know, there's a long story behind this guy too, but it's, you gotta, it's the early, it's the early eighties. And, uh, he was, uh, discharged from the air force and living with the family of, uh, one of my, uh, friends from my childhood. And, uh, you know, he was like this older guy out of, out of the, the military. Um, I have to assume and this, and I'm not using names here, but I'm, my assumption is that he was, uh, discharged dishonorably. Some information came my way. So he was living at this house. He had this massive stereo system and he had this insane record collection of, you know, eight tracks and, uh, and vinyl. And, you know, we would hang out. I'm not sure what he did for work, but he was around all the time. I remember it was summertime and he laid, we sold our souls for rock and roll on us, which is a greatest hits record. I'm aware of that. But the song black Sabbath, black Sabbath, even in the light of day, terrified me because I'd never heard anything like that at all. And, you know, later on, I discovered that it was the first song off of their self-titled record. I ended up getting that record. And then the album cover, I found out that it was a Boris Karloff horror film. And then everything made sense in the context of the music. You know, there was like the, the tolling bell, the rain, and then suddenly that mighty you know tritone chord progression and then it was like a, a hammer horror film brought to my ears and that sonic sort of intensity of it recreated this whole vision and and then you know and it just became synonymous with like dread and the macabre and horror and all this other stuff and it and its simplicity, you know, it, it leaves leaves so much, you know, imagination. Like, but you do you, you listen you listen to that song and and you picture the album cover, yeah, as well, you know, and you see this this person on the cover and you're like, well, who is she? Is she a witch? Is she, you know, what is what is her story? And and I mean, yeah, I mean. It's it's um, there's a reason why that record's still in print, 
there's a reason why people still go and buy that record and listen to it. And um, I can remember that as well as like the first time hearing it and being uh, it, it was Black Sabbath, the song Black Sabbath, and also the song Who Were the Brain Police by the Mothers of Invention oh, that I actually was terrified of by those songs and, w- and was really glad that I was not alone in the room when they were playing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it, it's like something that will scare you in the daylight. You know, like, yeah, like it makes you feel like you're you're sort of um, threatened by some unseen kind of force. Yeah, it doesn't help when you first time you hear Black Sabbath is, you know, you're, you know, six years old with your criminal cousins who who are smoking weed and asking you if you want to listen to acid rock with them. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that record came out in 1970, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Holy yeah, shit, and, man. And, and I was born in 65, so I remember being around six or seven years old when I heard it. And I had, like, these stoner cholo cousins that would listen to, like, and I would sometimes go and visit them, and they play me Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. I always found yeah. it interesting that, that Mexican people were really into hard rock and heavy metal. Do you think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, with the, the, the Catholic sort of, uh, you know, early imprint of that? Yeah, man, because like you grow up Catholic and there's this, you know, there, it's, it's a superstitious religion, man. You know, you've got the saints and you've got all these like weird rules and something. It's very and um, and listening to music that is like more on the darker side and, and has this dark, you know, dark imagery and stuff is always fascinating because it's taboo. I mean, you know, your, your, your parents who like raise you to go to church on Sunday do not do not want you. They're, they're making you go to church. So you don't listen to Black Sabbath, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> like and and so. Um, I think it's no different than like, you know, in the, the late eighties and in present day where you get these kids that are like fervently into black metal and death metal. And then you find out like, you know, their parents are all like really religious, you know, and this is their way of lashing out. It's, it's the same thing, you know, like even back then. Cause like, yeah, like and my cousins, you know, they were, they were like, cholo stoner types you know listening that just liked heavy listening to heavy music and then they would you know they'd also jam santana and oldies sure yeah i mean i grew up roman catholic too i mean my my um my family primarily my mom's side's italian and my dad's irish so it's like i grew up around the italian side primarily and uh my grandmother was from italy and i kind of grew up in my grandmother's house for the most part and there was she was one of these Italian ladies who had the statues in the house. You know what I mean? Like the Jesus on the cross, but it was so detailed. My mom still does. Yeah, My man. mom has the saint statues with, with the, the stigmata. Burning. Yeah, the stigmata yep. and like the blood. And, and it looked very intense, man. As a kid, I remember being afraid of Jesus Christ, you know? And oh, I used to hate walking by those, those things at night. Because all I would have to walk by the hallway and there's these saint, creepy saint statues with like three candles burning. And again, yeah, you know, Jesus with his palms up bleeding and, and 
and yeah, this stuff would freak you out, you know, and, and then they wonder why we become grow up to be obsessed with horror movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so much of that imagery, it, it was like the inverse of what you were being taught as a Catholic, quote unquote. And, you know, I think that, you know, you and I are about this roughly the same age. And it's like you come into your own in this in the 80s and the late 70s. And socially, things are changing, and um, everything's getting inverted, and you want to be free from society, and then you start seeing religion as something that is meant, you know, to be basically. I mean, let's face it: like Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism is like a peasant religion. It's a religion to for the overlords to like keep you your mind locked. So very, lot, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, like. You know, you know, you go like to Catholic, you know, Catholic churches and it's mostly working class and poor. Yeah, people. exactly. You know, yeah, it's definitely a, a peasant, peasant religion. And, you know, um, and, and I had no problem with the church as a kid growing up when the message was just about being nice and looking after the sick and the exactly. poor, you know, like those are those aren't bad things, you know, but you know, everything gets corrupted, you know, and, and even, even I watched as growing up as a kid, I watched our church being corrupted and I started asking questions and that's when I, you know, I, that was even pre-punk, you know, like I started asking questions before, before like I had even become a young adult, I had already decided that I was a you know, atheist, secular humanist, whatever you want to call it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, totally. But, uh, yeah, but that, that first Sabbath record, you know, that really was kind of what, you know, the Christian imagery, you know, going to hell, you know, Satan, the song, The Wizard, NIB, you know, my name is Lucifer, please take my hands. You know, at the at the time, I was like this young kid, probably still going to uh, CCD or whatever, Catholic uh, studies, you know, and all this stuff was like terrifying to me, but yet. It was one of those things where like it was even almost like when I heard Black Flag for the first time. It's like I don't initially I was horrified. I was like, oh, this is like noise. This isn't even who's this guy singing? He doesn't even sound like he can. He doesn't sound as good as the other guy that's on Heaven and Hell. You know, are these guitars in tune? They sound weird, you know, but as weeks went by, it just suddenly I wanted to listen to that stuff again. You know what I mean? And that was like, for me, the beginning of kind of turning around and like having different ideas about freedom and like mind, the mind, you know, going beyond the sort of uh, prison that you're put into at a young age when you grow up in like this kind of, you know, suburban world that I grew up in, you know. And I guess that's why the Halloween movie, too, for me was like a really, I, to this day, I enjoy it. I watched it, you know, last night. And because um, I grew up in a place that, didn't really look that much different than Haddonfield, Illinois. You know, this very normal setting, you know, but there was like dread and potential danger around every corner. And growing up every now and then you got glimpses of that kind of thing. You know, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in the city where there was like stabbings and, you know, 42nd Street and Travis Bickle and that kind of thing. I grew up out in the safe suburbs, but there was still a lot of creepy stuff that went on. Yeah, it's like Halloween or or like or just any even 
what it what it really is about is like you know terror terror going on in everyday town is like almost like you have this picture on your a painting on the wall and it's a beautiful you know a beautiful serene painting of like a barn or something right and and you could look at it and that's what it is but you remove that painting from the wall and you turn it over turn it around and and behind that frame is cobwebs and dead dead bugs from a spider that's been living there that's been feeding off of them and and that's what halloween is like it's again it's like the unseen you know like not everything every you know everything out front looks really beautiful and pristine and perfect but it's not when you look behind yeah and it's also um the time of year where like women get have the the green light to be like the sexy nurse or like the sexy vampire you know or whatever (laughs) and they get punished for it (laughs) (laughs) um another thing on my list here is the song bella lugosi's dead by Bauhaus. yep uh, on my list as well yeah you know and uh that's the band's first single and um some people even say that's the first gothic rock song. And uh, I think, um, judging from when it came out, which was, I think, 1979, I would uh, tend to agree with that. And the song's like over nine minutes long, and apparently it was recorded live, which uh, I can see that, actually, thinking about it. Cause it has this and it's of, just guitar, bass, and drums, too. Yeah. You know, and it just it has this like jammy kind of vibe to it, like a free form vibe after the song sort of establishes itself. And um, what actually, you know, it's this is this is funny because uh, I hadn't even heard of Bauhaus until I saw the movie The Hunger. Um, and that features in the opening scenes, the band yeah. performing that song, you know, behind like this chain link fence. And, you know, Peter Murphy's there, you know, looking vampiric you know very dark and evil and i i had heard david bowie i was getting into david bowie prior to seeing the hunger and when i saw peter murphy i was like this dude's like the kind of like evil david bowie in a lot of ways you know what i mean and um i just discovered the band through the movie then i found out they had the the ziggy stardust um cover that they did and that combined, you know, I've always been a huge Bowie fan. And now I had this new band, Bauhaus, to obsess over. So that kind of like opened the, the gateway to me. And The Hunger is actually a pretty damn good movie, too. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually went to see The Hunger when it came out because Bowie was in it. And then didn't know that Bauhaus was in it. And I was... I was I was a new Bauhaus fan. I had first heard about Bauhaus was seeing photographs of them in this British magazine called Flexipop, uh-huh. and it used to always like Flexipop was was like kind of a British pop, you know, magazine that would cover like new wave and and touch on punk and and Bauhaus had made the cover and with every issue of Flexipop there was a flexi disc and they would do uh, it's basically what decibel got their idea from an exclusive track mm-hmm. um you know for it and when i saw the what these guys look like you know and and i was like wow they look like you know 
the Adams family. Yeah. You know, and, and, and this, this one's either a really ugly girl or a really feminine looking guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And, and they, they, it was, it was, they were so mysterious looking that I had to, I had to find you. I had to hear them and, and there was no internet then. So I actually found, um, I, I went and I bought a copy of, the mask album was the first thing I was able to find of theirs. And that just blew me away and it creeped me out. I mean, there's a genuinely scary sounding like the title track on that. On, it, it's still a very haunting song and one of my favorite Bauhaus songs, but yeah, but Bella Lugosi's dead. I don't know if I'd say that's one of the first Gothic rock songs or ever. And I'll, I'll get to that later, mm-hmm. but it definitely is is a song that brought that whole movement, you know, that music thing to the forefront and it, it can't be fucked with man. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things like, Hey man, they just pressed that thing a 12 inch version of it for record store day last year. There's a reason why it's a great fucking song. It's still great and oh. nothing compares. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a great track, you know, and, and I got to say, uh, Peter Murphy actually looked scarier than any of the vampires in, um, in the hunger. I thought, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah, he looked feral. I think at the beginning oh, yeah. of that. He was perfect. Just, just, you know, scrappy and scrap and just sinewy, you know, and, and like, yeah, he looks, he looked like one of the vampires that you would read about in like, uh, one of the more wretched ones that you would read about in, in, uh, in, uh, I am legend or something. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's what he, he, he looked like back then. He didn't look like a sexy vampire. He looked like a tormented vampire that hadn't fed in years. Yeah, actually, uh, probably some of my favorite vampires are the ones that were in 30 days of night too, like in the comic book and in the, the, the movie version of it. You know, like in the movie version, it's another person's reimagining of the, those vampires, but just living in the cold, these like undead animalistic beings that actually were never human. And, and I like that version of the vampire more than, you know, I guess some of the other more classical, uh, you know, versions of the vampires. Yeah, I always liked that that one too. Like, like even though it's not that great of a movie, like uh, Sleepwalkers was the like, same thing. But they were like psychic vampires, and then they were cat. You know, they they were Egyptian or something. I remember they were afraid of cats. Yeah. yeah. I just and, uh, I know I'm I'm late to the game on this, but uh, I I just and I don't know why I didn't check this out, but uh, there's that series, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. I just start. I just watched the first season of that. Have you checked that out? I actually saw the movie and then watched one episode, and it's it's hilarious. Yeah. It's like Monty Python meets Hammer. What I like about it is that it's funny, you know. And but then there's these glimpses of actual horror, like in in within the series too. Um, and you, when when those the horrific moments kind of catch you off guard, and you're like, whoa. You know, like there's like these, it happens so infrequently, but there'll be like scenes of some pretty brutal stuff happening. And you're like, 
wow, I was just laughing like three seconds ago and now I'm just kind of like creeped out, you know. But that that that's what makes it good then. Exactly. Yeah, I've got it. I definitely got it in, in, in amongst of all the other stuff on my Amazon and Netflix streaming list. I'll, I've, I've got to get more committed to watching that one. But the one the movie itself, I thought was great. And then I watched one episode of the series and it, I, I thought it captured like everything about the film that made it awesome. So hearing hearing from you and, and we, we are pretty like minded when it comes to like our tastes and horror and stuff and sci fi that that there are genuine elements of like horror in it that kind of turn everything on its head. I'm that makes me really excited to yeah, hear that. Exactly. I love know. that kind of stuff. Yeah, because if it was a straight up a straight comedy, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much. But there are these like glimpses and and there are some subplots in there that you know, without the comedy still work as like good stories, you know, and that's what I, why I think it succeeds. You know, the comedy is like a spice added, you know, which just makes it that much better, you know. Yeah, I definitely got to check that out. Yeah. The, uh, the last thing I have on my list is the entire catalog of the band Samhain. (laughs) Uh, but but uh, specifically, uh, November Coming Fire being my favorite record and also being a record that we covered earlier uh, this month with Anthony Papalardo, which is like sort of another part of the celebration of Halloween, um, is by far like uh, one of my favorite records of all time. It's definitely in the top five and... Um, you know, if you guys have out there have been listening to this, you know that London May was a guest on on the show, and he was in Sam Hain, and you know he's got these acting thing going on, and you know the other bands and all this other stuff. So, so um, this is a not not a surprise that this band logs in somewhere in this uh, list of cool Halloween stuff. Yeah, I mean, but the 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 first. The two full lengths, like yeah, the the Initium and and November Coming Fire, are just yeah, they're they're up there as like uh, my all time favorite records, and it's it's weird because I, I I mean I have I think I like Initium better, but I don't think it's a better like the songs are better than the, than they are on November Coming Fire, I but the things that I didn't like about Initium when I first got it are the things that I like about it now that the production on it is uneven. Yeah. And it was deliberate because Glenn was trying to create an atmosphere for, uh, create an atmosphere for each song and, and not have it just, you know, all sound the same. And I think, you know, at the time when that record came out, I was probably like, 18, 19 years old. So I wasn't, although I liked it, I wasn't ready to fully understand it. And now the 54 year old version of me (laughs) gets it and appreciates it even more. And, and I, I like, I like Anishim more, even though there, there, there's some more kick-ass songs on the second one, just because it, it kind of like, you know, it was the first record and it set the tone. Yeah, well, I mean, Initium's got the shift. It's got a uh, black dream. Like those are those are like. I mean, the shift is kind of like a hor- like a horror like rock type song. You know what I mean? 
But um, yeah, yeah, and then and then our Archangel, which was originally written for the Damned, like That's he right. had and had written that song to be sung by Dave Anian. I read that somewhere. Uh, there's, you know, it's funny. There's um, there's a Misfits book that came out that I read called "This Music Leaves Stains," and the book I, I cannot, I cannot in good faith give the book high marks. Because um, they don't have any interviews with Glenn Danzig, which is bizarre if you're going to write a book about the Misfits. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about Sam Hain. They talk about uh, Danzig's like solo thing. And the author, and I, I don't want to slam anybody, but it's like the author in his introduction, his preface to the book, he um, admitted to being, and, and I have to give commend him for this at the same time saying that he got into the misfits in the 90s you know what i mean when they had that michael graves like era and he didn't oh, okay. even know that danzig was in the misfits he just knew danzig as danzig from the band danzig wow yeah so i don't think if, if it was me it'd be like me writing um a book about gene vincent or something like that like i like gene vincent got a bunch of records don't feel qualified to write about the man though you know what i mean so um i don't know and, without, and then i'd write a book and i don't have any interviews or anything. i mean obviously i can't interview gene vincent but so maybe that was a bad idea but bad uh, reference but but you get the gist of what i'm trying to say but they do have some of these factual nuggets out there about that song being written for dame Vady and, and, the, and the damned so but yeah definitely Yeah, I, I it, it's, you know, and <laughs> another thing is you got to dig a band that you still, you know, you still don't know what is the proper way to say their name. Is it Salin? Is it Sam Hain? Is it, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, according to Glenn, it's Salin. Yeah. The uh, people that I know that are involved in like the neo pagan world or Wicca and all that, so that they say Salin, you know, and they refer yeah. to it, but me and you. Yeah, I'm a, just a suburban punk, so I call it Sam Hain. You know what I mean? I was yeah, like, uh, all the punks call it Sam Hain. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I wait. What did what did London May call it? London May called it Sam Hain. I actually t we I brought that up with him, and he's like, "Yeah, man, you know, we're just like some punk rock guys, man. We'll call it Sam Hain." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, cool. So maybe, well, well, there you have it. Yeah, he was in the band. That's right. You know, and maybe Glenn." For simplicity, maybe uh, he called it Sam Hain too. I don't know. It's unknown. Yeah. I actually just got my hands on a, a really good bootleg, like a Sam Hain live boot yeah. that's been getting a lot of air, like getting a lot of play at the house. Just just how good that man was live. Um, it, it's it's definitely on the November Coming Fire um, tour. Um, it's it's that lineup. So it's like Damien on guitar, um, Erie, uh, yeah, Erie, and, and um, probably is is London May on drums um, on it. I'm not sure because it's a bootleg. It's not really uh, heavy on the info. Sure, but uh, it's it's a it's a bootleg called Black Flame, and uh, I think it's uh, it's from a show in Newport, Kentucky. 
in 84. Um, so it's definitely, uh, oh, wait, I'm looking at the album right now. No, he's, uh, London May's not on this. Supposedly the lineup is Danzig, Yvonne, Damien, and Steve Zing on drums. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's the original four piece and really well recorded in an amazing performance. Like, like, uh, I normally don't like the champion bootlegs of artists that still have stuff out there, but there's, I don't think there's any sense stuff in print right now so if you can find that black flame bootleg anywhere get your hands on it <laughs> that's a that's unbelievable that there's no sam hain material that's in print currently yeah and you know and glenn's always been smart and he it's definitely you know he must own the rights to it back again or something or maybe he sold the rights to someone and they're just in but that it is a shame that that stuff isn't in print and you know He's, he's, you know, he's very weird about that stuff too, because I mean, with his advent of vinyl being such a big deal again, man, there, there's, I'm, I'm not, I'm shocked that there hasn't been like Misfits, you know, seven inch collection represses yeah. and, and, and vinyl, you know, like some vinyl box set, you know, in a, in a Samane box set. And I'll be the first one to admit, I'll plunk that money down for that stuff. Wow. You know, and even just... though I have the original, in original copies of, of those records, I'll yeah. still buy the represses. That way I can retire my original. Now, that's how you know, I feel yeah. too. You know, especially yeah, if that uh, stuff came out like remastered and like heavy gram vinyl, that'd be sick, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't even get like the, the four classic, you know, Danzig albums in, you know, on vinyl. And that's a shame. Yeah. That's the, the, the copies that are floating around are bootlegs taken from, you know, just CD. You know, I think, um, and you might know the answer to this, uh, we did a Rollins Band hard volume classic records episode, and I don't think any of that stuff's in print either, like hard volume. Lifetime. No. Um, that stuff, really weird you bring that up, because I've been on a kick of that Texas Hotel era stuff lately, and I listened to the hard volume CD just a few weeks ago, and, and I was like, yeah, I don't that's a, i think the only thing that's been repressed is is a lifetime cd of uh, on vinyl wow. there was a licensed repress of that that came out recently but hard volume and um animal machine lps like a lot of that texas hotel stuff isn't even available on on you know it might be available on digital to stream but not available for sale. I don't think so, man, because I looked for it actually on um, Apple Music. I mean, I have all that stuff. Um, I mean, because there was a period of time where I actually have like several different copies of those two records. And one record I bought, it was funny, like I the vinyl of Lifetime. I was, there was a record store that was going out of business um, up the street from where I lived when I lived in Park Slope. And I just happened to walk in there one day and they were selling everything for like, you know, cheap. Like saw there was lifetime. It was like five bucks. I was, I was standing there in front of the guy. I opened, checked out, you know, it was opened. Obviously I looked at the condition of the record and I don't, this might even, this might not even be real, but on the, on the, the sleeve was written a note to Mitch Burry of Adams mass signed Henry Rollins. And uh, I don't know if it's actually his signature, but it's kind of cool. And the dude was like, 
saw me looking at it and I'm like, oh, look at this. And the guy was like kind of bummed out that he was selling it. But, uh, but yeah, I own several copies, CDs, you know, cause the CD versions always had the, like live stuff to, like tagged at the yeah, end. Yeah. They always had extra, extra, like the Dewey EP, extra stuff on it too. Yeah. And those live recordings are like um, great. Like, like that, that band couldn't be fucked with man. Like at that time, I, 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 I must've seen that original Rollins band lineup at least like 12 times. Yeah, actually, we Randy and I when we covered this record, we we talked about how and in, how intense like the live recordings are, and in some way, I mean, you you and I both play music. We're both in bands. We both heard live recordings of our bands, and we've been like, wow, that's really what we sound like. And to be that confident in a one take live you know, no fixing type scenario of your material to be that confident in that is fucking awesome, I think. And and that's because that band was like grinding all the time, man, playing live, like touring their asses off and, you know, were about music. You know, they weren't trying to be cool and like, you know, you know that make a image type thing you know they were about music you know they were like jazz guys or blues guys or yeah, something they, like that. they were rehearsing you know four to five days a week and he had he had picked up on that from greg ginn when he was in flat because that's what they did yeah and you know those live recordings are just straight to dat straight from the mixing board and onto dat like no fucking around you Have know you... there was no pro tools fixing no those no recordings no, you, the dat dat was like a new format back then. You know, it's like oh cool, yeah, and, we have this like ninety minute digital cassette or whatever we can record shit on. Yeah, well, that, that was the nineties, man. <laughs> yeah. So while uh, you hinted that you, you know, th and this is another heavy horror topic is uh, the the movie, the forthcoming film by Richard Stanley, which is his interpretation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story, The Color from Outer Space. And you mentioned in your text message that you'd actually seen this film. Yeah. Um, right now here in L.A., Beyond is going on. And it lasts pretty much like three weeks of screenings of soon-to-be-released films, classic, you know, science fiction and horror uh, stuff that maybe needs to get picked up for distribution. Like there, there's, there's a ton of different stuff. And, um, Scott Carlson from repulsion and I are, are friends and, and uh, I'm also the repulsion's booking agent, but, um, Scott and I have a lot of, you know, nerdy stuff in common. And, and we, uh, I ended up not being able to get tickets in time. They sold out, but Scott ended up with an extra ticket. So, uh, we went and saw, uh, Richard Stanley's new film, the Col and the color of space. And Scott had been warned that the movie was going to be kind of a shit show. And it, it was definitely not that it was great. And, you know, so any Richard Stanley fans that are out there and hear this interview, like it's definitely worth seeing. Definitely go see it at a theater if you can. Um, Nicholas Cage in it is great and he does his thing, you know, <laughs> but he doesn't overdo it. 
Um, but he does what is required and he, it does the film, the story does require that he freak out a little and, and he freaks out in a great way. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to see like, uh, hardware and theater when it came out and, um, and I own a copy of dust devil Yeah, and, and I'm a, I'm a big Richard Stanley fan. And, um, it was really cool to see. I mean, this guy hasn't been able to make a film in 20 plus years uh, that he got to make a film with no studio interference and he didn't fuck it up. And uh, I, I'm not fam- too familiar with the short story that it that is taken from, but Scott is. And Scott says that this movie is the clo- one of the cl- is the closest interpretation possible of a Lovecraft story yet. Yeah, that's and, that's not hard. That's a hard thing to do because uh, I think the reason why people have had such a tr- such trouble adapting Lovecraft to the screen is because very little action happens in the stories. It's all recollections or an atmosphere. You know what I mean? And and he writes about. Descri- trying to describe the undescribable exactly and yeah uh scott like said said it very well where he was like you know this movie really does capture that sense of existential dread throughout it like when things start to go wrong in this film you feel it you don't just see it you feel it in the film where you're going something is not right here Something is about to happen, and uh, it, 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 I, I really enjoyed the film. Like, um, no, it's not hardware by any stretch of the imagination, but there's never going to be, you know, he's never going to be that angry. But it, it, it's, it's a screwed up film, you know, in its own way. I mean, there, there was, uh, the pra- there's a like, you know, the creatures are weird and hard to describe and slimy and um, a lot of practical effects, a lot of prosthetics, but they do it so well in the film and, and don't overshow it where you can go, uh, okay, that kind of looked rubbery there, like just a rubber head or like whatever, like the editing and the way that it was filmed was done so well, like it's convincing. No, you know, great, man. I can't. I, yeah, I, you don't I, see the fish. You don't see the fishing wire or the man behind the curtain, you know, in this like it's it's done really well. And it was done on a shoestring budget. I mean, I'm, I'm most of the money was probably spent getting Nicolas Cage and now the effects, you know, because all the other actors, um, you know, aren't really big names aside from Tommy Chong, who. Both Scott and I, when we realized he was in the film, we were like, "Oh shit, he's this is gonna he's gonna fuck this up having that clown in here." And Tommy Chong's character is really good, and he and he's perfect for the role. Wow, yeah, that's that's interesting, man. That Tommy Chong is in the movie. You know, I mean, Tommy Chong is in a Richard Stanley movie, I mean, and it's not, and it's and it complements it not to its detriment. 
Richard Stanley, like David Lynch and Panos Cosmatos, I just think it's one of these guys who doesn't fuck around when it comes to directing and stuff. I think that, you know, and, and actually I think that Nick, an actor like Nicolas Cage really shines like when he has a strong director, you know, like I think Nicolas Cage is great in when when David Lynch directed him, you know what I mean? And he was great in Mandy, you know, and Panos Cosmatos directed him. And it's like, you know, I'm assuming, he, you know, you were just saying that he, he did really, he was he played the, the part of uh, Nathan. I think that's the main type, main character's name in in color. Um, he, he was great in that. And, and Stanley is one of those guys. I feel like he has a very tight vision of what he wants the actors to, to put forth, you know. He, uh, there was a, there was a Q and a. At the screening, Stanley was there oh, really? with all the actors. Oh, wow. With exception of Nicolas Cage. And the actors said that uh, Stanley handed each one of them a small synopsis on their character's background. Like three to five pages written about their character, their character's back background story, and what, I mean that that's the guys that got vision and he has you know yeah he's not screwing around he's trying to tell stories and he definitely gives his cast the tools that they need to do to, so he can get the performance out of them you know so it's definitely not for lack of trying and this guy this guy doesn't direct films to get a paycheck obviously because he would have been making films on the regular if he did yeah. You know, he's he's, he's like right up there with like, you know, Joe Dororski and Lynch. And they're going to make a film when they don't have to make compromises and they have something to say. That's awesome. <clears throat> but yeah, I was I was I left the theater really happy that I went to see the film and I got to see it in the cinema and also like. You know that I wasn't disappointed, you know, that, and, and it, it's definitely, it, it, I guess you, it, it, it might be the most commercial of films that Stanley has done, but it's still weird and fucked up. Oh, sure, man. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't imagine him making like some kind of blockbuster, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and um, he, he's hinting at like, you know, if he gets to do another film and he gets to do another Lovecraft, he's hinting at going after Dunwich. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, the, and, and there's some great stuff that I'm not going to spoil for anybody. Like when they see the movie, but like any, any great, like, you know, filmmaker, there's subtle references and hints in the background of the scenes. And like, there's even like in one of the characters bedroom, there's like a reference to hardware and, and, um, and just stuff mentioned on broadcasts throughout the film and stuff. It's, it's just great. I mean, everything, everything is there for a reason. It's completely premeditated. You know, if, if any of you guys out there who don't know who this guy Richard Stanley is, he is a uh, incredible filmmaker who's only made a very, who has a small amount of output by, by way of feature length films. But the three, the, three films that he has that I know of at least I know he's got a bunch of shorts that were collected but I'm talking about feature length films and that's include the you know color from outer space it's um hardware 
and Dust Devil. And if you can find those, they're excellent. Hardware is available on on Blu-ray. That's the one that you could you could you could find. Like I actually just plunked down and and bought it a few months ago on Blu-ray, and it has like the Blu-ray has like all his short subject earlier films on it, and a really good documentary. And I heard uh, Dust Devil is finally going to get reissued on in the United States on Blu-ray as well. That's awesome. A few yeah, number which, of years ago, a version of, of Dust Devil came out that had a bunch of shorts on it, and that's the version that I have. That was a legit yeah, that movie. was the subversive media version. I yeah, I bought that right away. It's like a multi disc. There's like two different versions of Dust Devil, yeah. and then all of the those documentaries. And all, another uh, added uh, bonus, and uh, for you guys out there who've been listening to this show for you know the last year or so know that I'm quite fond of Fields of the Nephilim and Carl McCoy. And uh, Richard Stanley has directed uh, some video work for them. And he, Carl McCoy also is in, has a small part in hardware in the very beginning. So, And, I, and actually, here's some, some trivia, too, for that. Um, I was at Monsterpalooza a few months ago here in Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm hanging with, Git, with Mike Gitter. And Gitter goes, look, it's Richard Stanley. <laughs> and there's Richard Stanley hanging out at the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, was it Synapse or, uh, no, at the Severin. At the, it, it, Richard Stanley was hanging, just standing there next to this Severin, move, Severin company booth. And Gitter and I walk up and talk to him, little fanboy out on the guy, and he's gracious and polite and extremely talkative like whenever i meet meet like a writer or a, a a director or a musician that i admire i work really hard at not talking too much because yeah, i too. know like to not punish them and just i want them to thank them for what they do and kind of keep it simple but he was he was great and uh, he didn't give yes or no answers to a couple of questions i tossed at him he gave informed lengthy uh responses and i had asked him about carl mccoy being in hardware because like like yourself i'm a huge nephilim fan and i had heard that one of the reasons why he had stopped doing the nephilim was he wanted to pursue a career in acting oh wow okay and that was not true stanley okay. said that actually he hated acting oh and he never wanted to do it again um, after his experience in, in doing doing uh, hardware and that uh, his voice in in the movie hardware is actually overdubbed by somebody else. Really? So that's not Carl McCoy's voice. Wow. OK. And, um, you know, because they had they'd flown out to like, uh, where was it, like Tunisia or something to do those desert scenes, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the flights were scary and, and, you know, on, on like these rickety ass buddy Holly killing type planes, you know, and, and yeah, it, it, he said that, that, uh, Carl McCoy was actually pretty miserable filming that. And the experience was so, he was like not interested in doing films period. Wow. After that. And he, and, and Stanley was the one that wanted him to do more, more cinema. Huh. Uh, but it just wasn't to be. Wow, that's uh, that's interesting because I feel like Carl McCoy is like 
you know, being so theatrical and, uh, you know, very photogenic. And, you know, if you needed a guy to play like some sort of wizard or shaman, that he'd be a go-to guy, you know? Exactly. Yeah, he's got the look. Like, he's definitely be a great character actor. But, yeah, it turned out that not he, that was it. Hardware is the beginning and the end of his, his film career, you know. But, I mean, I, I mean, anybody who's listening, is, if you haven't seen Hardware, you got to see it. It's It still holds up to this day. And it's Stanley definitely, Richard Stanley is a visionary because the things, the subjects that he touches on in that film are going on today with yeah. drones. Yep. And on all this stuff, and and back then in the '90s, when when this was just science a science fiction film, it all came. It's all, it's all coming true. There's also some other uh, rock cameos in there. You have the voice of Iggy Pop and uh, Lemmy in the film. Yeah, Lemmy's Lemmy's in it, and uh, it, it originally the DJ uh, Iggy Pop, who's the DJ Angry Bob, did, he said the original was supposed to be Johnny Rotten, but oh, they just wow. couldn't make the time. And so he got Iggy Pop to do it instead. But there's that pill song that's in the soundtrack too, which is cool. But, yeah. yeah. And uh, the score is a, there, a few years ago, a vinyl release of the score came out, which I ended up picking up and it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Simon Boswell, man, like he's, he's done some of my favorite scores. Like he's did the, the, the hardware score is great and that that double vinyl reissue is awesome because they actually it's like a, a almost like a criterion version where they they do the, the original version plus added tracks yep. that they wanted to put in the film but never like cues that never ended up in it or something and they they kind of reformulated it like as to like the director's cut of a soundtrack and he oh, also man. did the soundtrack to like santa sangre which is another one of my all-time favorite films there was a, that was a film that was hard to find for a while too, Santa Sangre. The yeah, film. and that that's that's a you can now you can you know could never I had to like buy that on bootleg video when it like a couple of years after it came out, and then now you can watch the damn thing on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, hey, you can actually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but I ain't complaining, man. Like those as if those movies can get seen by people. Awesome. Yeah, totally. More more people should be aware of uh, Jodorowsky, definitely. I mean, he's still fairly obscure with a lot of people, but the guy is, is such a, once again, another visionary. And like like Ron, like you were saying earlier, he only makes films when he's got something to say. It's not like, a, you know, a paycheck for him, you know? No, like he doesn't have to. Like the guy, like, does lectures, you know, he's he does lectures on the, on the scholar circuit. He's a, a shaman. He... He does like workshops. He, um, the guy doesn't need to be make money doing films, and and he's, you know, nutty enough that he won't make compromises. So what's on the horizon, man? You got anything uh, interesting coming up down the line? For me, yeah. For in you, general, well, you know, you're you're a booking agent. You uh, play bass, and uh, you know, you're a singer. You do all this stuff, man. So what's what's going on? Um, well. Let's see, musically, uh, Final Conflict is actually going to be going on tour at the end of October. Uh, we do a West Coast tour with I Hate God and Negative Approach awesome. and Sheer Terror and The Accused AD. And um, 
it's a tour that starts in Seattle and ends in Southern California. Um, it's the first time Final Conflict that has played done a tour in 22 years. I just realized this a few weeks ago. Um, and a lineup like this is the reason why we said yes. Is when when we were asked to do it, and that was the lineup presented. I was like, I'd be at that show, so why not show up and get paid? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great way of looking at it, man. Definitely, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna do that. I mean, and it's such a heavy lineup, man. Like like Final Conflict is is the opening band on it. Like us and the Accused AD are flip flopping the first position because it's just someone's got to play first, you know. And and I have no problem with that. That's the great thing about it. No one had an ego about well, I'm not gonna do it unless I play at this position. It's just like, wait a minute, you want me to go on tour to to open for my some of my favorite like bands period and you're gonna pay me some money to do it yeah okay so for me it's a vacation you know i'm gonna be on the road for seven days hopefully jeff and i won't kill each other <laughs> um which i'm just kidding about that but anyways but yeah i'm, I'm looking really forward to that and we've actually um uh, started discussing like final conflicts going to uh, start working on new material for what will be either an EP or an LP. We're going to write a whole uh, bunch of uh, tunes and then uh, see what is, uh, what comes out of it. It could be a full length. Uh, could be an EP. We're not going to put out anything, uh, anything that's bad, you know? Yeah. Um, but we, we discussed the concept. Like I kind of have a concept of it, of what I want to do, which is um, many years ago when during world war two, there was a Japanese uh, uh, unit called unit seven, three, one. And this group of people of men were scientists and they did a lot of inhumane tests on, on people. It the, was basically uh, the equivalent of the, was it to the Chinese? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm familiar yeah. with this tough subject. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, they were a development unit of the uh, Japanese army and they, they did a lot of like human experimentation. And when the, they were defeated, most of the people involved in this project, nothing happened to them based on the fact that they gave all their research findings to the United States government. And it's not something that's usually brought up very much, you know, but I kind of had this idea of like, basically the things that these people did and got away with, you know, because they shared their, their findings with the United States government to be implemented in other means I kind of look at it as like, you know, the ghost of you know, like what's going on today. It's like yeah. the ghost of unit seven, three, one. And that's the concept I'm going with lyrically on, on these, this, this new material that we're working on is it's all going to fragment off of that. So anything that the thing that we release is probably, that's what the working title is going to be. The ghost of Unit seven, three, one, because when it gets down to governments, it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as it benefits them, they really don't give it. 
That sounds interesting, man. I'm looking forward to hearing it. With you, what, you know, whatever you guys come up with, it sounds like it'd be pretty cool. It, it's gonna, it's gonna be really, really angry, really dark, and nihilistic. It, it's not gonna be a feel good, hopeful, you know, record because I'm not a hope. I'm not a very hopeful person, <laughs> and I, I, I enjoy being the spoiler. <laughs> So, so that the, the the concept came together quick, and when I discussed it with Jeff, like this is what I what I'm thinking of lyrically, what we could go with, and and this he was just like, I'm I've I'm already he he told me because I'm already thinking of notes in my head to go with this, like, so there'll be some supreme Black Sabbath meets crucifix discharge damage, you know. That's awesome. With with these screwed up, you know lyrics about unit 731 or the after effects and, and whatnot so that that's something i'm really excited about with the lower class brats we've already finished it, an album and it's done and um we're working out uh, the european licensing talking with the label we have the american licensing and musically that's a lot different than what i do with with final conflict whereas final conflict is like i said like black sabbath meets discharge crucifix uh Lower class brats is more like uh, a bunch of punk kids that like love Twisted Sister, Slade, and Kiss, and put it into a punk rock context. And um, the that album's done. It's going to be called Tales of the Wild, the Ugly, and the Damned. And uh, lyrically, it kind of covers like our lead vocalist's uh, bones. He he actually has been well over a year sober. And a lot of lyrics deal with that is, is like uh, dealing with demons and trying to, you know, shake off bad stuff from the past. And uh, we thought kind of cop the album title from, from the title of one of my favorite Ultravox songs, which is The Wild, The Beautiful, and The Damned. But there's nothing beautiful about us, so I substituted <laughs> beautiful for the ugly. That's awesome. And, and the lyrics kind of tie in with that because the whole record is it's a concept record without being a concept record. Yeah. You know, so and and Bratz play, we'll do mini tours, mini tours here and there, you know, but my days of getting in the band for like, you know, extended amounts of time are long over because I much prefer being behind the scenes and booking tours for other bands and, and, um, I look at myself as a booking agent who happens playing bands and not a musician who books shows for a group for a band. That think, makes sense. I think uh, dudes in bands probably appreciate that sort of uh, order of operations, I think more than the other order of uh, order of operations. You know what I mean? Yeah, because I like the ability that I can go out and I'll go out once in a while or go do a weekend of shows because it keeps me, in touch with what the, the artists I work with have to deal with. And I also get to put meet and greet promoters and see the venues that I'm working with myself. Um, but it's important that I kind of prioritize what I do, you know, and, and I really do like working as a booking agent because I never want a client to go, wow, this tour isn't going as well as planned maybe it would have been better if my booking agent wasn't like halfway across the world and punk rock with his, uh, with his band. Yeah. You know, exactly. six months out of the year. And 
I've had, I've had friends of mine who have complained that have had booking agents that are also musicians and they've complained about that exact thing. Like I can't help but feel maybe my tour would have went better, but my agent himself is touring six months a year, you know? And, um, I'm an old guy, you know, I'm 54. I, I like, you know, I like being at home. And so I'm, I'm good with playing the, the, the festival here and there going away for maybe, three to four days and and this final convict tour is the longest I've ever done a tour in, for a week. But that's about it, you know, right now that's all I got in me. I, I like being at home. That's awesome, man. It all sounds good though, man, to me. So yeah, cool. It, it it's the best of both worlds, man, because I can I can, you know, I can get my little fix of going on stage and screaming about how much I hate authority and cops and 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 then, you know, fight the good fight for the bands that I work for, I mean, you know, uh, I look at the job as like, I'm a human mixtape. Like when I was a kid, I would make mixtapes for all my friends of like all my, these, these new bands that I was hearing or tape trading with, you know, and here, check this out. Well, now it's like, it's just a different level where, you know, I'm putting bands on tour and telling the public, Hey, check this out. You know, like I dig this and, and I want you to hear it too. So I'm going to bring this band to your town. Well, thanks for uh, taking time out today, man. I appreciate it, and um, I hope you enjoy your Halloween. And um, you know, everyone else out there, enjoy the holiday. I hope everyone's uh, checking out some great movies and really embracing, you know, the season. You know. Yeah, man. Thank, thanks so much for asking me to do this. And like, yeah, like, cause this is my favorite time of the year. Um, it's it's one of the only holidays I actually get excited about and going and seeing like going to like haunted houses and and the mazes that are, that happen all over Los Angeles and and stuff. So uh, I'm I'm really stoked and flattered that you asked me to do this. Yeah, we should do this more often, man. I think there's uh, definitely some other stuff we can talk about that I think would be equally as cool. Yeah, I'm and I'm I'm totally into it. Cool. All right, thanks a lot, Ron, and I'll catch you guys next week. Hello, hello, Luminous.